when I was growing up, I loved basketball. Actually, I still love basketball. For those of you who don't like sports, I'm sorry. These are always the introductions that I give. I grew up in uh, Kentucky, and Kentucky's known for being a basketball state. So it kind of just came in my blood, loving basketball. I started playing in about third or fourth grade, and I remember first getting into the sport through watching the great Michael Jordan play. Our family had a small 13-inch box TV. Yes, they used to make those. My parents would only buy us the finest of electronics. And I sat there as close as I could to witness the greatness of Jordan play in the NBA Finals. I saw how people revered and praised Jordan. As, as a young kid, I desired that as well. I started playing with my dad and my brothers and practicing all the time. My room was covered with posters of players that I wanted to, to be like. I started to suddenly think that I could worship both God and basketball. I would not have thought it at the time uh, that I was worshiping basketball, but if you had a glimpse into my life, I played, I watched, I daydreamed about it. This was, this was my life. If I didn't do good in a game, my life was ruined. I would be devastated. My life depended on how I performed on the court. My identity, who I was, was based on, on my performance. And I thought this is what brought me worth before God and, and others. I thought if I was obedient to God and a good Christian, God owed me what I desired. So I would read, I would pray, I'd go to church. And this was the breakthrough formula that would destine me for the greatness that I craved. I would especially make sure to read and pray before a big game and uh, so that God would cause me to, to do amazing. If people observed, you know, the external parts of my life, I would appear to be a Christian following God and, and doing the things that I was supposed to. But in reality, my heart was very far from God. I was seeking to use my religious devotion to make God give me what I wanted. So, in the text this morning, we're going to see how two men approach God. One comes on the basis of what he does, which is the way I approach God as a, as a young kid. And the other man comes before God in a different way that we'll, we'll see as we look at the passage this morning. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. That's in the New Testament. Uh, kind of towards the end of, of that gospel. It's the third gospel. So just a little bit uh, of context before we uh, read that passage together. This is a, a, a par the parable that Jesus is telling. He's telling a series of parables here. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this is probably well known to many of you. Uh, it's easy to read through and it feels like we can know and understand the main message so we can have the tendency to quickly just move on. It's a short and simple story, but I think at the same time as I study this, it's profoundly deep. If you look at uh, chapters 15 to 18 of Luke, Jesus enters into a, into a series of teachings through parables to different audiences. There's some real-time events that occur in between some of the parables, and we see a couple of themes that are, uh, are picked up in this parable that have played out earlier in the Gospel of Luke. One of those themes is prayer. And in this parable, two men are going up to the temple to pray. 
Secondly, there's a contrast of two different groups of people. The religious leaders, those that are respected in society, and then the sinners, which would be the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Tax collectors would be in the category of sinners for the Jews because they were Jews working for the Roman government. Rome was the world power at the time ruling over Israel. Not only were the tax collectors working for Rome, but they were known for cheating their own people by charging even more what Rome asked for and keeping the rest for themselves. So they were known to the people as thieves, cheats, and traitors to their own people. Then in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls Levi, who's a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. Jesus goes to Levi's home and is eating with Levi's friends, and they're described in Luke 5 as sinners and tax collectors. And they're described this way by the scribes and the Pharisees. So we see these two people groups that are opposed to each other. The Pharisees are shocked and offended that Jesus would be associating himself with this type of people. It's not something that a good religious teacher would be doing. A couple of chapters later in Luke 7, Jesus goes to Simon, the Pharisee's home, and a woman who's described as a sinner, most likely a prostitute, enters Simon's house, and she pours expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. She cries, and she wipes his feet with her hair. This is a a shocking scene. And similar to the complaint in chapter 5, Simon is shocked, and he complains that Jesus is allowing this to happen to him by such a sinful woman. Lastly, we come to this section of the parables, and Jesus begins teaching on things that are lost and then found. He's showing that Jesus' mission is to come to seek and save those who are lost and outcasts. The lost understand their problem, and Jesus finds and rescues them. And we see this clearly explained in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus is poor and needy in this life. He's mistreated by the rich man. Then he dies and he's welcomed by God into heaven. And the rich man dies and he's cast into hell. And then right after Jesus tells the parable of this parable, he's welcoming the children to come to him. And we see the rich ruler rejects following Jesus. Those that are coming to Jesus for salvation are the unexpected and the outcasts in society. So let's uh, get into this parable together. Luke chapter 18, verses starting in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see in verse 9, right at the start, that Jesus is telling this parable to those who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they looked down on everyone else or treated others with contempt. 
notice that Luke actually tells us the meaning of the parable before we even hear it. That doesn't usually happen, so that that's very important. You want to see that. If we miss this, we won't understand the parable. It tells us that the parable is directed to those who are self-righteous. So I think we can reason that probably many of those listening to Jesus' parable at this time were the religious leaders, that they thought they were, they were good enough, they were self-righteous. So I have three points for us this morning to help us walk through the text together. First, we have our good works, our good works in verses 10 to 12. Then in verse 13, our heart condition. And the last verse, verse 14, our justification. So first, our good works from verses 10 to 12. Jesus opens his parable saying that two men go up to the temple to pray. This would be totally common and assume that Jewish people living in Jerusalem would regularly do this. The temple was a special place for the Jews because this was where God's presence was with his people, Israel. The high priest would offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year at the temple, and it would be a privilege for the Jews to be able to go to the temple and pray. The first man we see is a Pharisee, is a religious leader. What do we notice about him? What do we notice about his prayer? He's standing before God. He's away from others, maybe because he believes he's better than others, right? He wants to be separated from them. And we see from his prayer, it's very self-focused. Notice how many times he says, I. He doesn't really seem to be praying to God actually at all, but just telling God what he's been doing. He compares himself with other people. Seems to be pretty much just reciting his CV to God instead of praying to him. He's not greedy, unrighteous, an adulterer. It's like he's looking up to God, telling God, hey, I'm, I'm so much better than everyone else. And he looks around the temple and then he sees the tax collector. He's like, especially that guy, better than him. He's in God's presence and he's confident that he's worthy before God because he's so much better than those around him. He fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of what he earns. He goes above and beyond what God's law demands. Now, I want us to stop and think for a minute if what the Pharisee is saying is true. For many of us who have heard this story, Often we already assume, you know, this guy's the worst. He's so prideful and arrogant. But what do you think those listening to Jesus thought about this Pharisee? They probably thought, hey, this, this Pharisee's life is like my life, or at least I want to be like this Pharisee. He's a good Jew. He's a good example of an upright man who's seeking to follow God. Not only did he not do bad things like adultery, but he did good things like fast multiple times a week. I think we can assume the things he's saying is, are, are true. This guy deserved to be in God's presence and commended by God if we're comparing him with other people. But let's seek to put ourselves in, the, in this man's place. I know when I've read and heard this parable, I can think what I've mentioned above, man, this guy is such a self-important jerk. He's so prideful. I would never think and act like this. I know so-and-so acts like this, but I, I would never do this. They are so prideful and arrogant. Let's, let's move on to the next parable. Wait a minute. I fall into the trap. Isn't my attitude showing 
I'm viewing myself in the same way, comparing myself with others. How can we tell if we've fallen into the trap of this parable? One way is to think, which character are you more like? As I said, I can automatically think, of course, I'm not like this Pharisee without really examining my heart. Another way is, how do you think and talk about others in your life? Do you gossip about others? Do you try to cover your gossip with Christian language and use it as a prayer request? Please pray for my attitude towards so-and-so. Did you hear what they did the other day? They did this. We need to examine in our hearts, are we gossips? Titus 2.3 says, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or gossips. Obviously, this command is not just for older women. All Christians should seek to turn away from speaking about other people in a degrading way? Do we seek to compare ourselves with others by tearing people down? If Christ is in us, we should seek to build up and encourage others. If there's sin in someone's life that needs to be addressed, we should bring it up to that person uh, just with them one-to-one. Now, sometimes we do need advice or sometimes sin should be addressed with multiple people. We, but we always want to examine our motivations. Are we desiring to help this person spiritually? Or we want, are we wanting to see them grow and mature? Or do we desire their, their downfall? And oftentimes when we gossip and speak about others in a, in a negative way, we're, we're desiring their downfall. Another aspect to think about with the Pharisee is how do we think about the good that we do and the bad that we don't do? I think as human beings, we naturally look to our achievements, to prove ourselves to others and to God. This can be in any area of our lives. It can be in our work, it can be in our families, religion, recreation, it can be in anything. When I was growing up, I made my worth and identity in basketball, as I was sharing earlier. I craved and desired the praise of people based off of my accomplishments. I also thought I was earning God's favor by reading the Bible and going to church. I thought God should pay me back because of my religious devotion. This is the natural fallen way for human beings to think. And even if you're a Christian here, this kind of thinking can drift into uh, your life and you can start thinking and living this way. This is what, what, what Paul addresses when he writes to the Galatians. He's shocked that they've moved away from the basics of the gospel. This is how Jesus' audience thought in this parable. This is how the Pharisee thought. And we can easily think this way as well. And we need to examine ourselves. If we think this way, we will push ourselves forwards and put others down. Generally, this is how religion tells us to think and live. Be religious, follow the rules and the list beyond what you're even asked to do. Do this and hopefully you'll make it to paradise. I can't tell you how often I've had conversations with people that think this. Sadly, I hear this from many different religions, even, even those from Christian backgrounds. They trust in their own efforts and ability to follow the law. And there are many churches that teach Christianity is all about following rules. And that makes Christianity no different from any other religion. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. We can follow our religion very strictly and appear to be following God, but even the good deeds we do are like filthiness before God. 
we need to remember God is infinitely pure and holy. There's nothing that we can do to earn his favor. Think of, you know, the most holy people that you can think of. Think that the, that the world definitely says, I thought of, you know, the Pope, Mother Teresa, Gandhi. These people are what the world says deserve God's favor because of their religious devotion. But even their good lives are like filthiness in God's eyes. Mother Teresa, the Pope, Gandhi, they need a savior. Their righteous lives cannot earn them a spot in heaven. If we are saved by our performance, like the Pharisee thought, there's no need for Jesus to come and sacrifice himself. I have many friends in my life who I would categorize as good people. They live good lives. And I've often told my wife, Brooke, that, you know, if we're saved by what we do, then I think this person would definitely go to heaven. They're like a better person than I am. But the reality is that no one is good enough in God's sight. That brings us to our second point from verse 13, our heart condition. Our heart condition. So we talked about the Pharisee. Now let's look at the the tax collector. What is his posture? What's his attitude before God? We see he's standing far off and he seems to be ashamed to come as close as others are. He won't even raise his eyes to heaven, but is beating his chest. This man seems to be in agony and torment compared with the Pharisee. The Pharisee seems to have no problem coming before God. He's not in any sort of pain at all. He seems to be enjoying his time. The tax collector is calling out to God for mercy because he's a sinner. Again, we want to understand how the audience would be thinking about this man, those who were listening to Jesus tell this parable. They would agree that this man doesn't deserve to come into God's presence. He is a sinner. He's a liar. He's a cheat. And they're right. He is a sinner. He most likely lied, cheated, stolen, and taken advantage of a lot of people. He doesn't deserve to come before God. But what is, what is the tax collector? What does he realize about himself? He realizes that he is a sinner. He knows that this is true. He deserves God's punishment. What do you think Jesus is trying to teach us about the human condition from this tax collector? I think this is what Jesus wants us to see is what we should all realize about ourselves. All of us are sinners before God. We don't deserve God's mercy or to come into God's presence and not be punished. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Again, let's... let's seek to put ourselves in the tax collector's place. Christian, how, how do you view your sin? Are you in agony over it? Do we see that we deserve God's punishment? When you sin, do you rationalize and justify it? Do you say, well, at least it's not as bad as my neighbors, or it's not as bad as this person, or this happened because of this circumstance? When I was younger, I used to sneak into the movie theater to watch movies and not pay. And I would justify my sin, my theft, by saying Hollywood doesn't need my money. So we can have clever ways of justifying our sin. If, if God has saved you, we should have the attitude of this tax collector. He was desperate before God. We should have the attitude of, of, of David from Psalm 51 that Neil read for us earlier after he sins with Bathsheba and Uriah, 
David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. We need to recognize that our sin is first and foremost against our creator. And we should hate it and turn away from it. The tax collector, he didn't try to rationalize his sin. He acknowledged it before God. A way you can tell if you've become a Christian is that you truly acknowledge your sin before God and you turn away from it. This is called repentance. And living the Christian life also involves continual repentance. Not that we're saved every time we sin and repent, but that God is continuing to show us our sin in our lives and we acknowledge and repent of it continually. This is called sanctification. And this is evidence, right, that that Christ is in us if we're continuing to repent again and again because the Holy Spirit's working in in our hearts, causing us to see our sin. We'll never be perfect until we see Christ. We need to be continually repenting because our natural heart condition before God is defiled. As Jesus says in Mark 7, the heart is what defiles us. It's not the things that we do, it's the heart. And the tax collector in this parable understood this. It brings us to our last point, our justification in verse 14, our justification. Here we come to the the shocking climax of the story for Jesus' audience. And their thoughts, they would think, of course this tax collector is going to be rejected by God. And the Pharisee is going to be accepted. The Pharisee is better. He lives as he's supposed to. He deserves God's favor. Instead, Jesus turns the tables on his hearers. The tax collector is justified and, the fair, and not the Pharisee. Why? Well, Jesus explains at the, at the end of 14 there. The tax collector humbled himself before God, so God lifts him up and exalts him. For the Pharisee, it's the opposite. You can just imagine being there and listening to the last line. They're probably just sitting there with their mouths open in stunned disbelief. How could this be? Imagine the Pharisee, you know, walking away from this so-called prayer. He's probably happy believing that he was justified because of his goodness. But what do we see? What's his problem? What's the, what's the Pharisee's problem? I think we could say he's, he's self-deceived. He will stand before God one day and be condemned. When Jesus um, in, in Matthew 7 addresses many who will come to him at the, on judgment day, and they'll say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name and prophesied in your name and did many mighty works in your name. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. This is the category that the, this Pharisee is going to be in. How many here this morning are self-deceived, trusting in your good record to justify you in God's sight? You think because you go to church every week, you pray, you read your Bible, you are nice to people, God will forgive you. You're trusting your good deeds will hopefully outweigh your bad deeds. Self-deception is, is common for all of us. I think just a, just a small example, this is an uh, example I was trying to think of of being self-deceived. You know, I can think I'm good looking and my beard's very well kept, but more often than I care to admit, Brooke tells me I got food in my beard and I have no idea. 
this, this is just a, a minor example, but you know, how much more serious when it's sin in our lives that we're not aware of? What are some tools that God gives us to keep us from self-deception? I think one very helpful tool thing that we see from scripture is biblical church membership. Being part of a covenant community that promises to encourage, admonish, exhort, and rebuke when necessary keeps us from the deceitfulness of sin. If I claim to follow Christ, but I have no other Christians or pastors watching over my life, how do I know if I'm in sin? We can easily rationalize and excuse sin in our lives when it's only up to us. Biblical church membership is a means of grace that God gives to Christians to keep us in the faith. Living out our faith is meant to be done in covenant community, not on our own, coming and going as we please, or just watching sermons online. If you claim to follow Christ and you refuse to join a local church, I want to encourage you to check your heart. Why are you not willing to join? I think, you know, many can rationalize not joining a church because they don't want people involved in their lives telling them what to do. Or maybe they fear commitment. Or maybe they think church membership isn't in the Bible or it's legalistic. Or they think their faith is a private and personal faith. Now, joining a church, don't hear me say, joining a church doesn't make someone a Christian. But refusing to join a church might be evidence that Christ is not in you. Jesus told Peter at the end of John that if he loved Jesus, he should feed his sheep, his church. And when Paul encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identifies, Jesus identifies himself with his church. So loving Jesus means loving God's people. And practically this works itself out and being part of a local church. So loving other Christians is not optional in the Christian life. It's necessary, and it shows that Christ is in us. Becoming a Christian is something that happens individually. It's not based on your family's faith or your friends, but living out the Christian life is corporate, and it's not solo. So God's good design for us as Christians is to follow him through being members of local churches. So members, I want to talk to you for a minute. If you're a member of this church, just thinking of practical ways to be involved and invested in this church is not only to come on Sunday mornings, but to come for our once a month prayer meetings that meet uh, the first of every month, every Sunday in this room at 5 p.m. This would be a great thing to commit yourself to doing this year. God's design is to reach the community and the nations through the local church. In Acts, we see that God's people gathered together regularly to pray, to bring their requests to God, and then they went out to the community to share the gospel. I know many of us are busy. We have various obligations and uh, commitments, but I want us to see the importance and the value of bringing our requests and our praises to God together as the body of Christ. Don't view this as legalistic, but view it as a joy, as a privilege. If you don't view it as a joy, ask God to change your heart. I think we as pastors here would love to see this church come together on mission 
And the first step in this is gathering to pray together. This is just a practical way to be an active member and part of this community. And it helps keep us also from from self-deception. My prayer is that this year, many more of you will see the value of gathering as the church to pray and show up the first Sunday of every month at at 5 p.m. here. So moving on from the implications of self-deception, this parable really came alive to me as I shared it with many of my Muslim friends this past semester during Ramadan. Now, many uh, Muslims believe that this prolonged act of devotion of fasting will gain them favor and forgiveness before God. As we would discuss this parable, I would explain what Jesus is saying. And it's like a light bulb would, would go off in their minds and they'd realize that what they were doing will not gain them favor before God, according to what Jesus was teaching here. I think man-made religions teach us we need to perform and achieve to gain right standing before God. The term justified is a legal term that means to be in right standing. Most everyone knows we as humans have a problem of sin in our lives. People agree to that. We can often drift into the comparison game and think, we all have sin, but at least I'm better than than that person over there. I've talked to so many that agree we all have sinned and done wrong things in our lives, but this is normal because everyone has it. God's understanding because he knows we're, we're just humans. He doesn't expect too much of us. He gives us rules to follow so we can make ourselves into better people by our performance. Jesus shows this is not the answer. Why is this not the answer? Well, it's because of our sin, our heart condition, like we saw earlier. And sin is not just outward actions, things that we do or don't do. Sin is within the heart. So even if you live an outwardly righteous life, you still have sin within that God sees and hates. The problem with man-made religions is they don't understand the depth of our sin before God. So they don't provide the adequate solution. The God of the Bible doesn't excuse our sin or lower his standard of holiness. He demands that we be holy because he created us this way. We all choose to sin. and It's impossible for us to meet God's standard, no matter how religious we are. Only Jesus provides the true solution of giving us right standing before God. If this is going to happen, we must acknowledge We must acknowledge our sin and call out to God for mercy. Many of my Muslim friends also agree to this point as well. And this is where we need to look at the whole context of the gospel of Luke and and the Bible. How does God provide mercy? How does the tax collector attain right standing before God if he's a sinner deserving God's wrath? Is it that he simply needs to see his sin and ask God for mercy? Well, yes and no. He must realize his sin, but he needs to see that God provides mercy only through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. Many think that we can just genuinely ask God for forgiveness and God just ignores our sin. But the problem with this thought is that if God just ignores our sin, he's unjust and not carrying out the right judgment for sin. God must deal with sin. And the way that he does this is through Jesus taking sin upon himself at the cross. Jesus pays for sin. Just as at the end of Luke, the criminal next to Jesus realizes his sin 
and his need to be saved, and he calls out to Jesus. God pronounces, people are justified only through Jesus. Our justification is a declaration of God. It's not based on anything we do or will do. It's initiated by God. Since God is the one who acts in saving us, we have nothing to boast in. He deserves all the praise and the glory, and we gain eternal life. This is how God shows mercy. So if you're here and you're trusting in your works or your achievements, I'd urge you to turn from your pride. If you think that you can just be sincerely sorry for your sin and confess it to God, apart from trusting in the sacrifice of Christ, you will not be saved. Acknowledge your wickedness before God and turn to him in faith and receive God's gracious pronouncement that you're justified in his sight. It doesn't matter if you're right in anyone else's eyes except for God's. The tax collector in anguish pleaded with God for mercy and God heard and answered his prayer. So do the same today. Turn to the Lord and find everlasting life. I'd love to talk with you more after the service if you have questions about what it looks like to call out to the Lord for mercy. In closing, one of Luke's close friends and travel partners, the Apostle Paul, picked up on this teaching of justification in many of his letters. Paul explained from his own life that he used to trust in his own righteousness and goodness before he became a Christian. He was a good Pharisee and zealous in keeping the law. His confidence before God was in his performance and in his achievements. Then God saved him on the road to Damascus, and he understood and believed that he could never achieve right standing before God on the basis of his good works. So I'm going to read for you from Philippians 3, verses 4 to 9, that Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just like the Apostle Paul, I also used to put my identity and value in my achievements. Born in Minnesota, grew up in Kentucky, made to play basketball, played varsity as a sophomore, et cetera, et cetera. But then God saved me. Now I count all that I've done or accomplished as rubbish before God. I'm justified in this sight by faith and the blood of Christ. And this is true for every Christian here.